This episode of AD History is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast and the exclusive benefits that await you for your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD History you deserve by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered, some of what we missed in world history covering the 3rd century, as well as a few fun other bits? Well, do we have some stories for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Foote, and I'm joined by always by my co-host, Paul K. DiCostanzo. And Paul, I'm doing the intro, so that means one thing and one thing only. We've missed some stuff. We've definitely missed some stuff. We said at the end of every century, but this time around, we really mean it. Oh my God, how much we have missed. Hard editorial choices. And I know I say this every time that you do the intro now, but it is so strange to hear that backwards or or hear it back towards me. It's just, it's a special thing. It's a special thing. I'm so used to hearing you say it that like when I went to parrot it, then I almost said, I'm your host, Paul K. (laughs) DiCostanzo. I'm just so used to hearing it like that. Yeah. No, wait a minute. No, I don't say that bit. I have to change that part. But yeah, always fun when I get the chance. It's become our thing. It's an AD history mm-hmm. thing. And so, yeah, we have missed a lot because we've been clawing through the crisis of the third century. That was the choice we made. That is the bed we are living in. And we are glad that everybody has joined us in that effort. And it's hard to believe that truly, formally, this is the end of the third season here because we've... Man, just it's, it's incredible to consider, just in general. We're only 1A through this thing, which is both awe-inspiring and amazing at the same time. Daunting, yeah. but a, a worthwhile challenge. Yeah, daunting's the word for it, but it's been great going this far. It's been amazing seeing the world change, because we really have covered enough where the world... There's been some massive changes in the world, it feels like, since we began AD history in these, these first 300 oh years. Things have, things have changed massively, and not just in Rome, but in China, you know. Was, oh, hell, I was talking about when we just began our show in our own world. Oh, yeah, that too. Gosh, yeah, the, the world's changed drastically as well. I think this show might be longer, has been around longer in COVID than out of COVID. De- oh, definitely. Definitely, yeah, definitely there's no question now, yeah. about it. It's just all blood into one bio now, but no, we're still here. We're still here, and we've got to cover some what we missed stuff, Paul. Absolutely, and we have a bunch to cover, and there's a lot to talk about, to be sure. And we got some other fun stuff that we can only really do in a what we miss. So there's plenty to look forward to there. And with that in mind, let's lay down our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast ground rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. So Patrick, what 
haven't we missed at this point? It's just there's so many things to cover that we couldn't even cover them all in this episode dedicated entirely to covering things we missed. But <laughs> we're going to give some reasonable highlights. And the thing about these highlights that I really enjoy is that they also portend stuff that we're going to be getting into in our upcoming fourth season because they so heavily bleed over that boy, oh boy. So this is a taste, you know, this is a taste of things to come in addition to things we partially missed. So that is going to be a thing, without a doubt. Yeah, and I feel like to make up for how much we focused on Rome this season, this century, the fourth century, I want to spend a bit less time, less, a bit less time in Rome this time around and explore more of the world, explore the Gupta Empire perhaps, Paul? Oh. Well, that is as worthy a candidate as any to start. I can assure you that, my friend. And so, yes, the Gupta Empire, specifically encompassing the Indian subcontinent. And between circa 240 and 280, there's a lot of question as to exactly when this happened, is when one Sri Gupta effectively laid the roots for what is going to be this political and military and cultural powerhouse that's going to dominate our next two seasons in many regards in the last till around the sixth century, to be sure, that would be impossible to ignore given the matter of our show. And in fact, interestingly enough, coming up in about the second episode, I believe, of the fourth season is when scholars believe that the Gupta Empire reached its zenith. Now, some consider the Gupta period to be perhaps the golden age of the Indian subcontinent, with Sri Gupta laying the foundations as we described before, though the origins of the Guptas themselves are by no means certain. They're believed to have originally hailed from somewhere in the north-central portion of the Indian subcontinent, specifically the Indian province of what we know today as Uttar Pradesh. And so much of its art in particular, because I think in many ways the cultural impact of the Gupta Empire as it is influences today is very much found in its culture, art, literature, things of that nature. But in terms of like actual tangible means of some of their greatest accomplishments, actually come in the form of large religious sculptures. Because one of the interesting aspects of this Gupta Empire and this Gupta period is that for the most part, they did a very fine job at patronizing the arts, which is always a very fine thing by any means. And under most circumstances, we've seen this abused many times as well, hell. But also, the other thing that's interesting is a lot of these religious sculptures that exist, they are usually, like I said, religious in nature. And the three big at this time are, of course, Hinduism, we've discussed Buddhism before, and uh, Jainism. And during this time, they absolutely flourished. And we're talking about Sri Gupta a little bit, because Sri Gupta, in this case, would be the focus given and this would happen in the third century. And it's amazing that in reality, so little is actually known about him, interestingly enough, specifically from what we would consider contemporaneous sources of his time. And even inscriptions on coinage always seems to be coming back to numination. Always coins. <laughs> always, always the coins, ma'am. There is no real mention of him until quite a bit later, specifically under his great-grandson where they're making specific mention to him, and then later coins continue to do so. But the vast majority of what we know about the Gupta actually comes from Chinese and Korean sources, specifically, I believe it's Buddhist pilgrims, interestingly enough, specifically because, like I said, they very much patron the arts. And in the case of Sri Gupta, according to these sources, which are 
pretty much being in the 6th and 7th century. So we're talking usually like three or 400 years down the line here. And the thing they found so interesting, and this, was all, this is all in Uttar Pradesh, is that they created a Buddhist temple for Chinese pilgrims, and they dedicated the revenue of 24 villages to its upkeep and operation. And that's kind of what we know at this point, really. And it's kind of disappointing that we don't know more, right? It is a bit. like The, the Gupta Empire seems to be a huge part of India's history. And to not be so clear on its origins is it's kind of disappointing, but that, that's the feeling of these history books. We're fortunate to have, to know this, if you think about it, we're kind of almost fortunate to know this to an extent because so much history is lost around the world. But it's interesting how you mentioned the art was so important because I was just Googling Gupta art and it is that classic like Indian sculptures. If you have an Indian sort of sculpture in your mind, it's most likely Gupta. Even that classic depiction of Buddha himself, the the image you see all around, or that stone statue of uh, Buddha you see, that is Gupta. And that was so, so very interesting to see that was the case there, because I didn't know that myself. I couldn't put a name to that. I could have put a name to that style of um, architecture, but now I can with this. And the Gupta is going to be playing a big role in season four of the History Pool, aren't they? Without a doubt, we're going to get into that one neck deep. And there's no way we could possibly avoid it, because they're going to influence so much, not even just in the time they existed, but like I said, until now, because... As I mentioned prior, there are many scholars who really credit this time at this empire's height for being the golden age, especially on a cultural basis mm. of the Guptas themselves. And that's definitely something that cannot be ignored under any circumstance. And I think we'd be quite foolish to do so. So there's definitely a lot to look forward to there. And anytime you're able to bring the Indian subcontinent under a more or less what we would call a, a hegemonic regional power, that is an extremely impressive thing. If you look at the yeah. greater history and its totality, certainly within the epoch that our show covers. Totally. Like, despite our modern concept of India being one large nation, that is it's so not very rarely, if you look through the history books, it wasn't often one large nation. It was small, smaller sort of empires and countries and, and sort of principalities all within the and Principalities, yeah. All within that subcontinent. Hence why it's known as the subcontinent. It really is big enough to be a subcontinent unto itself. Um, something I'm always fascinated when we talk about Buddhism is I, I always forget it's, it originates from India. Sure I see it's such a Chinese and like Japanese and, of course, Korean religion. I, I, you just presume it comes from more the Far East, but I'm you, always you, shocked. You're always thinking about East Asia in that case. Mm. And also mm, you places like Buddhism. Vietnam, mm. Cambodia, Thailand, things of that nature, where it really took hold and in some respects still, in fact, does. But, you know, we're talking about the Indian subcontinent just as mm. this kind of collection of powers kind of over time. And when you look at what India is today, it's such an aberration compared to its history. The whole concept mm. of Indian nationalism by comparison to this huge stretch of history and civilization that is all of that came out of the Indian subcontinent, that the idea of Indian nation statehood, and by that extent, will also, of course, include Pakistan, you know. At some point, much further down the road, yeah. we'll, we'll get to the division between the two. And it's interesting. You know, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I think in what we missed, we can take a, a slight liberty. In many respects, you can actually credit in many regards the British presence when it became the Raj specifically mm -hmm. for helping cultivate and bring together this concept of Indian statehood as a nation state. Because prior to that, one of the things the British did really well was 
you know, play off certain principalities off another because it was just so segmented. So many different little focal points of power. The British in their time, especially when it became officially the Raj, we're not talking about the East India Company at this point. Mm. In many respects, it almost kind of took care of itself. It's something like, on average, 30,000 British civil servants to be able to oversee the Raj for the most part. I mean, that's incredible stuff. And you're so dead on hit the hammer, nail on the head there, Paul, with that one. A while back, this is kind of off topic, but a while back, I was sort of searching what... Why hasn't any major empire ever claimed China? I just thought that was an interesting sort of concept. Like, why didn't the British claim China during the whole thing? And I was Googling, and this, this might not be true at all, but it was just interesting. I was Googling. One of the main ones is because China, by the time the British were knocking about and doing their thing, China was already a solidified single state. Whereas India, yeah. as you mentioned, was made up of all these principalities and regions and whatnot. So instead of just taking on one massive entity, the British could just colonize India, the Indian subcontinent, state by state. And as you said, they really, the, the, con- the modern concept of the country of India we have now is just the aftermath of what the British Empire brought together with the Raj. And it's, it's a really fascinating thing there. It certainly is. However, Paul, it wasn't just the Gupta Empire that were coming into their prime at this time. There was another empire rising. And this is a part of the world I desperately want to talk more about. And this is, of course, your side of the pond, Paul, the Americas. And this is with the Mayan civilization. And it was circa 250 AD to about 300 AD that the Mayan civilization entered its classical period. And the Mayan classical period is often compared to a flourishing of culture, development and innovation, like those experienced during the Italian Renaissance. And it lasted into the 10th century AD. So this wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. Um, in the case of the main civilization of this period, it was mostly composed of various neighboring city-states, some reminiscent of the Greek world in early antiquity. And it was during this period, there was a definite evolution urbanization. And this period was marked by political dominance by Teotihuacan in the Valley of Mexico. And they most noticeably overtook Baiku, or it would appear, the previous Tikal rulers, and their various local rulers and kings under the direction of Sivjakak. And I'm constantly amazed to hear what was happening over in the Americas, if it's even fair to call it the Americas at this time. Well, there's the no better world. word for it. No, there's no better word. I mean, there's the new world. That's what I like to call it. But that's a bit too, bit too old fashioned. <laughs> but um, I love the irony of that statement. Exactly. Exactly. The great irony of that statement, indeed. Just to hear like this comparison, you know, hearing various city states working somewhat together, that does sound so much like ancient Greece. It's amazing that we always just, uh, annoyingly, there's this there's this narrative played that the Americas, until Columbus got there, or until way further down the line, was a bunch of uh, nomadic people. I don't even want to say uncivilized because it was just a different kind um, of civilization, but it wasn't even that. It was so similar to what was happening in Europe. Well, let's understand that when we say, you know, quote, uncivilized, We're coming from the perspective of how those who ended up colonizing the Americas Mm -hmm. called it and thought about it at the time, which I think is an important distinction to make here. So everybody keep that in mind. You know, there's nothing to be apologetic for. This is just history. And Mm. we're all doing our job and understanding it in the context of the world that it happened. And it's amazing because there is so much civilization there. You know, beginning in the I think it was right off the bat in season two, you went and covered the Hope Well in North America. Which is yeah. really quite incredible because there are remnants of it all over the place. Yeah, there's a massive network of trading yep. all over like the east of North America. It was amazing. 
Yeah, there's a reason why colonization in certain respects was easier when the Europeans got here is because in many respects, the people living here for so long had been outfitting it for all sorts of economic activity and transit that you can possibly imagine. It's quite an advantage. Yeah, it's it, it's absolutely incredible stuff, and I always love talking about this. Paul, do you reckon there's any chance we're going to be talking about the Mayans more during the fourth century of AD history? There's absolutely so. no question about it. Yeah, there's no question about it. You can't ignore it. it, and it's too fun. Yeah, it's, it's really fun too stuff. fun. I mean, one of the benefits here of AD history, and I like to mention this every once in a while because people, mm. you know, they hear, oh, you know, you're doing something in history. And they have this assumption, though it's not erroneous, but it's still not an accurate one, that just because you're working within some element of that field, that you're a Rolodex of the entirety of, of human history. And of course, this is not true. We all have our specializations and super yeah. interests and where we're able to flex our muscles. But in this case, and I think it's something that's really important to point out, is that, of course, the approach is what matters here, naturally. Hmm. But... Throughout the show, you and I have learned so much. We have. We have it's learned. It's an incredible education. Yeah, one of the intentions of this podcast was to learn stuff myself. I love learning about history. I want to have a rich understanding of how we got from there to here. And that's what ED history really is all about. And there's an awful lot of things we've learned by doing this podcast, isn't there, Paul? Without a doubt. I mean, where do you stop? But here's the last thing that we, that we missed that I think is awfully important, though. And we mentioned it kind of in a tertiary fashion, because there are so many elements of Rome's crisis of the third century, this is one that deserves our attention right now, and very seriously, and something that everybody listening at this moment can understand in a very personal way. And that, of course, is what happened between the late 240s AD and the early 260s AD, which was the plague of Cyprian. Gosh, yeah. This was nasty, nasty, nasty business. Worse than the Antonine? Yes, I think it was worse than the Antonine. So it's going to really flat on our radar. <laughs> well, the plague of Cyprian at its height in the city of Rome just itself was losing up to 5,000 people a day. <gasps> wow. And it's believed that because of this epidemic, whereas Rome more or less crossed the 1 million threshold, Back sometime in the, uh, what I'd say the mid second, second century, century something yeah. like that. Yeah. In this case, it had only taken a century to get to half that number from where they were due to this plague. My God. It's it's utterly devastating stuff. And so in this case, well, why do we call it the plague of Cyprian? It's actually named after a Christian bishop who lived in Carthage, better known as Saint Cyprian. And he's the best ancient source we have, specifically because he's giving more or less contemporaneous accounts of what he's seeing going on around him, just giving the idea of what both the medical and societal impact of this particular disease. This is an interesting quote from him in describing what would happen to people in this case. Quote, the pain in the eyes, the attack of the fevers and the ailment of all the limbs are the same among us and among others, so long as we share the common flesh of this age. Close quote. This is just absolutely ridiculous stuff. 
And so as far as like the actual pathology of this is concerned, because this is obviously rather important given our show here, in this case, it was largely described as follows in terms of just understanding exactly what was happening to people. It included fatigue, bloody stool, fever, esophageal lesions, vomiting, conjunctival hemorrhaging, and mm. severe infection in the extremities, debilitation, loss of hearing, and blindness followed in its aftermath. What evil would that be to do all of that? Well, this particular epidemic was so devastating that in hindsight, looking back to what was going on throughout the Roman Empire at the time, and certainly this was not something that was entirely localized to the Empire of Rome. You know, disease doesn't, doesn't do that sort of thing. It goes no. where it goes. It's amazing this that this didn't topple the Roman Empire. Despite all of its political issues, this was a severe disability. And pretty much any source is utterly shocked that Rome managed to survive it in one piece, which is really quite a lot to talk about. The thing that's interesting here, though, Patrick, and something that's really important to mention, and in fact, it's, it references a figure that we had talked about when we were talking about the Antonine Plague and shortly thereafter, and that, of course, is the famed physician Galen. Mm. He, one of the major fathers of modern medicine, certainly before we discovered germs in the 19th century in France. And the thing that is so difficult about this disease is that we apparently don't have a source that is like Galen, giving us more of what we consider information medically that would be of use to scholars and researchers today, which is interesting. Yeah, perhaps that's the reason why this play got so bad, because there wasn't a mind like Galen about to help combat it. They were just obviously, and also you got to wonder, it's kind of another tangent as well, you got to wonder if the crisis Rome was facing helped this plague get worse. Maybe if Rome was in a more dominant position at the time, it makes you wonder if maybe this uh, epidemic was so bad because there wasn't a great uh, mind like Galen about to help combat it at this time. And that also makes me think maybe this mm. uh, epidemic got so bad because Rome was in such a crisis, kind of like a chicken and egg scenario. Was the plague bad because the crisis was bad, or was the crisis bad because the plague was bad? It's one of those things that quite possibly, if Rome was in a more dominant position and wasn't such a bloody mess at the moment, they might have been more able to combat this plague that went through their city. Like that's just an interesting way to think. Like maybe, yeah, maybe, 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 maybe the crisis, maybe the plague didn't help start the crisis, but the plague, the crisis made the plague much worse. I don't necessarily know that it's the chicken and the egg thing here. The reason no, I say that, that is term. because they had so little ability to handle this, even under the best of circumstances. Mm, so you figure, I guess so, yeah. look at the Antonine Plague. That happened, of course, under Marcus Aurelius, one of the five good emperors, when Rome, it, for the yeah. most part, was working as it was designed to do. And they didn't have any greater ability to handle it than anybody else. And even Galen was at an extremely severe disadvantage when you consider the fact that he didn't know what germs were. And we wouldn't know what they were for a very long time. And until you make that breakthrough, this is almost just something, it's almost supernatural in their eyes. They understand proximity and the, the general idea of transmission and being around it, but it kind of ends there. 
But something that's interesting here that I remember coming across that I thought was truly fascinating is that Rome's experience as an empire, not just the city, as an empire, given its devastation, that there's a very strong possibility, according to some sources at least, that it actually may have bolstered the popularity of Christianity. And for a few reasons, and probably the biggest one, I think, if I understand correctly, is that when it came to Christians in general and their leaders at this point in time, they very much advocated for taking care and nursing the ill. And I'm not just talking about fellow Christians. I'm also talking about what the Christians would have considered pagans as well. Mm. So it was not something that was entirely isolated. Well, we're just going to take care of our own. And from what I understand, I think Christians in general actually came out of this a little bit better health-wise as well because of going after this, because there was such a stigma, as you would imagine, of getting near anybody that has this you know, terrible epox upon them. It may very well have bolstered not just the health of Christians in general based on things that are very simple, rest, hydration, nutrition, things of that nature, things that help any person try to fight off some sort of more or less hostile invader in the case of your immune system. And I find that fascinating because naturally at this point, given where we're going to begin in the beginning of the fourth century in our fourth season, Christianity is going to take a huge leap forward in a way that up to Mm. the recording of this show, it is still the case today, specifically with Constantine and his conversion, which is a huge honking step, to put it least. But, you know, in terms of the, the actual issues here and a lot of the stuff that came along, I remember there was an unnamed source that was describing that what was happening in Alexandria, so capital 1A in the empire, as we've talked about before. Mm. And this is fascinating that this immense city, quote, this immense city no longer contains as big a number of inhabitants from infant children to those of extreme age as it used to support of those described as hale old men. As for those from 40 to 70, they were then so much more numerous that their total is not reached now though we have counted and registered as entitled to the public food ration all from 14 to 80, and those who look the youngest are now reckoned as equal in age to the oldest men of our earlier generation. Close quote. Holy hell. So what are they saying there? The youngest are now reckoned as equal in age to the oldest men to like... It killed off so many people. My God. That a 20-year-old is basically the equivalent of a 40-year-old, and they're having oh to God. assume much larger responsibilities due yeah. to the absence of the people that died. I thought it more meant like they looked like a 20-year-old looked 40 now. Might have Maybe been the they case did. Yeah. Whatever, yeah, whatever the case, that is a monstrous. This is a not a pleasant pandemic or epidemic, I would say, or plague. Not a pleasant plague, uh, this one, the Cypriot plague. And I'm glad I'm not living through that one. <laughs> But something I believe Cyprian noted in his various writings talking about this at the time, he was also remarking on how shocked he was that Rome managed to survive this. And specifically, if I remember correctly, he was actually crediting certain emperors for keeping the ship afloat. So in this case, when we're talking about the crisis of the 3rd century, we're talking about, yeah, of course, this is a huge political struggle and total dysfunction that is made totally worse. So, so much worse because of this pandemic. And there is nobody listening to this right now that cannot understand that with crystal clarity. (laughs) 
It all sounds a little familiar, unfortunately. It does, Rava. Today, I think as listeners go, they would have a great deal more sympathy and a great deal more empathy than they would have had this episode dropped three years before the time of recording here in the fall of 2021. Yeah, that's a very, very, very quick minute, Paul. It's always a bit harrowing and sad when we have to talk about plagues. This is like our second plague now. Yes, it is. Talk- yeah, that's the second plague we've covered. And it's just kind of a bit like in the past, there was just these strange concepts. But now like, oh, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It does hit home an awful lot more. And it just links us back to that ancient world, the people of the past. They faced issues exactly the same as we did, you know, like war, sickness, all that sort of stuff. Like that hasn't gone anywhere, unfortunately. Like it can still just knock an entire civilization out. Yeah. So so easily. Luckily, we have many more tools to combat it successfully today. And we know what germs are. <laughs> uh, that goes a long way, my friend. That goes a very long mm-hmm. way. So these are some of the things that we missed, but there are also some things that we're teasing for the future. But with that in mind, we're going to come back with a Patreon submitted question segment that we think is rather interesting and you'll enjoy and something that I think is rather worth listening to because we consider this journey not just between Patrick and myself or Anna or Odo but you listening wherever you may be listening. So us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon See the link in the description Now, back to Paul and Patrick And thank you as always, Anna And yes, the music for the mid-roll was sent to us by a fan of the show from The group National Nervous Breakdown, very, very appropriate title at this point, The Bluffer. So enjoy that. That'll be dropping at some point for them. And hey, it's really cool. If you send us music that you created yourself, believe me, we'll end up including it in the mid-roll. So we're talking about the Patreon submitted question here. And it's an interesting one. And the question goes, you guys are now at the end of your third season. What are some of the most important lessons you've learned doing the show? And more importantly, what are some of those lessons that you never expect having to learn during that time? And, you know, Patrick, the question is, where do we start? That is a really good question. So uh, when, in regards to what we've learned, I think on, on a very forward film, we've learned a lot. I knew so little of the content of these podcasts. Like, what the actual, like, obviously I knew of Rome, I knew of ancient China, but there's a lot I've learned from that point of view anyway. Well, there certainly has been a learning experience in many regards. I think really in reality, there are two distinct fields that kind of have to be bifurcated to answer this question. Mm. So what have we learned from in the case of designing the show and its content, how we do it? And of course, all the various technical externalities that come with doing this show and the way that we want to do it. And I'm going to start with the second part first, interestingly enough. And I definitely know for a fact that there are plenty of people out there 
that want to be doing something like this? And the short answer is, if you feel that way, you most definitely should. But they also get intimidated by the various technical aspects that they believe are necessary and the knowledge and things of that nature. And that's not unfounded. But one thing I can definitely tell you, especially as somebody, in, in this case, just kind of pull back the curtains a little bit here. So the way the show is divided up in terms of responsibility, a lot of the technical stuff falls on my side. Yeah. My, and, my answer to that question is get someone else to do it. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's definitely wisdom in that. But the first thing I will say is, as far as the technical side is concerned, one is don't be intimidated by it. It can be mastered. And the good news is, based on the fact that there are so many independent creators today, the market for those who create that type of equipment to do that kind of work or that kind of show, that kind of presentation, have begun very aggressively adapting to that demand. Whereas, say, two years ago, even when you and I began, there wasn't mm. nearly the kind of resources that were available to make this a lot easier to do it high quality off the bat. So that's a huge thing. Like, for example, now, Though I'm not a huge fan of them necessarily, I understand that it is an entry point. There are some incredibly high-quality USB mics, specifically dynamic mics, which is the one you want. Anybody who tells you that you want a condenser mic to do this, they're full of shit. So don't, don't believe them. That's a bad idea. You want a dynamic mic. Because the fact of the matter is we're not sitting in, a, most people, I should say, are not sitting in these really nice acoustically treated spaces where a condenser microphone literally, if you turn up the gain high enough, you can basically hear your own circulation. <laughs> That's not what you want. But a dynamic microphone most certainly will capture and isolate the voices much, much better for what you're trying to do in this case. And that's something you and I learned very, very harshly. But it was a good lesson. But outside of yeah. that, one thing I would definitely say is learn as much as possible about it. Demystify the process. There are so many good resources out there now that can show you how to do this and do it at a really high level if that's what you're dedicated to do. And when you're in a, a medium that is only audio in this case, it's awfully important to know that quality audio does matter. There are a lot of podcasts out there that are not the highest quality audio, but you still listen to them because they're really interesting. And that is definitely a lesson unto itself, which is the other half of what we're going to talk about here. But when you only have the audio side of things, it is important to make it as listenable as possible. You don't want whoever is listening to have their ear fatigue for any number of things. And so taking the time to learn more about the process would be a good way to start. If you're looking for a good reference point on the technical side of things, especially like microphones. Microphones is something everybody worries about. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing everybody thinks about when you're doing podcasting. And then certainly that's far from hard to comprehend. Somebody that I would actually recommend that you take a look at on YouTube is a channel called Podcastage, P-O-D-C-A-S-T-A-G-E, that is created by Bandrew Scott. And he does a bunch of reviews on all sorts of microphones in every way that you can possibly imagine and gives really incredible and helpful insights. And on top of that, he really does a fine job at engaging with his audience. He's a great, great guy. He, he's special. He's special. He's special. And the other person that I would also consider doing, even though you might get a little turned off by it because it looks like it's mostly sound for video, there's also a lot of just audio-only stuff, also on YouTube, is a fellow by the name of Curtis Judd. Very much somebody I would recommend. But don't let the technical side intimidate you. 
the barrier to entry in terms of knowing the stuff has been lowered significantly and makes it so much easier now to put out high quality stuff. And that's important because naturally you always want to put your best foot forward in that case. And there is a lot to learn. But if this is something you really want and you want it to be good and you want it to be special, you want people to enjoy it in every way possible and leave no barriers or any impediments to them doing so, learn as much as you can about audio and how it's done. It's not inaccessible, and I would encourage anybody to do so. And the two sources I just mentioned are really fantastic, in addition to a number of others, but those are the two guides that I would definitely recommend in this case. Also, Mike Delgadio. He's actually, for the most part, a very, very talented and successful voiceover artist. He also has a YouTube channel called Booth Junkie. He also has a tremendous personality. You can learn so much from just those three guys if you're really interested in doing so. But let's look at the other side of things, Patrick, because this is, I think, the part where you and I both really are together in lockstep because this is a shared creation. This has been an evolving thing, and that's content. And the reason I want to kick this over to you is because with Name Explain, you've learned so much there, and a lot of it, though it's not a one-for-one thing between this and, and, and Name Explain, you have a profound insight into the nature of content, how it's developed, how to really reach people. And I think that's something that any listener right now would be very curious to hear your insights on. Content. Just just, just make it, I think. That's the re- that's, that's kind of the, the place I'm at now. I'm in a fortunate position that Name Explain is doing pretty well in the fact that I can kind of make the videos I want to make. And they, they definitely don't always get the amount of views I'd want them to, but it keeps the ship afloat. And that's all I can ask for. And I think something what's worth learning about this process, something I've had to learn again, is enjoy every success, appreciate every listen or watch or view. Because for, for doing name explain, like it's like, you know, like a thousand views or a thousand subscribers doesn't sound like all that much, but to hit that kind of number on AD History's YouTube channel or to hit that on the actual like podcast subscription sort of feeds on Apple Music, to see how many downloads each episode has gotten. Granted, not as big as Name Explains numbers, but it's amazing to see those numbers and appreciate them on a completely different level. Like, wow, that many people are listening to our show, Paul. That's a great thing to know. It really is. I mean, obviously, Name Explains is a total juggernaut. And something that I would also definitely say that's kind of of like a, a podcast creator circle knowledge that's not necessarily something that anybody outside of those circles would know is that when it comes to podcasts in particular, and specifically when you're talking about places like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts, whatever the case may be, is that when it comes to comparing those numbers to something like Name Explained, they're not, they're not even weighed in the same way. And relative to the podcasting sphere in which we operate, there are quite a few of you guys out there, and you keep coming back. And I think that's something that's interesting. This is also on the content side two things. One is you never know who's listening. So you always want to put your best foot out there. That's part of the whole idea of really taking the time to develop and learn how to make the content listenable and enjoyable and you know sharing ideas and concepts and telling stories that only you can tell is really where it's at. And the other thing, this is something, Patrick, I know you can appreciate, I can definitely appreciate it. I've experienced this with various articles that I published over at TGNR, is that the article or the video, or in our case, the episode that we think is going to get so much traction, it's so good, some of our best work, 
don't always live up to those expectations. And then the ones that we give no thought to in that respect that don't have those expectations by half are the ones that end up taking off. That's always the case. The amount of videos I thought were great that get no views and the amount of videos I thought were awful that get lots of views. It's always odd. You can never really fully understand how this juggernaut works, how the beast of YouTube, the beast of online content works. You kind of just got to hope for the best. And sometimes you're lucky, sometimes you're not, but that's just it. And like a lot of this, a lot of this does, uh, does feel like luck, especially with name explain. Um, something else, I'm trying to think of things I've learned while doing AD history and this sort of thing. It, it's been so interesting seeing the difference between how YouTube works versus how a podcast works. That's something I didn't fully appreciate or understand uh, before making this. And what I something I adore so much about podcasts is I like the secrecy of podcasts. I like the fact that viewing or downloading numbers are public knowledge. I've always found it a bit strange that YouTube viewing numbers are such a thing and are such public knowledge. I like how there's a bit more behind the curtains with podcasts because in a world where everything's so clear to us now, it's, it's, it's fun to have some stuff still secret hidden behind the curtain, I think, Paul. I think it's always okay, regardless of what business or field that you're in, to be able to have the books that are entirely your own. Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. And you're right. And a lot of people think about popularity in terms of YouTube numbers. And mm. one of the big reasons why, you know, there are certain podcasts out there that obviously just blow everyone else away. Not everybody can be a Joe Rogan or a Mike Duncan. You know, the, not everybody can, well, certainly you don't start there. You know, it's a process. It's, it, you're really just building and building continuously. And th that's kind of an interesting aspect to it because you who are listening, wherever you may be listening, whether you're on the various podcast directories, whether you're on YouTube, it's a game all itself. It has its own rules. It has its own social mores and taboos between creators, and it's its own beast. But something that I would also mention here, because this is certainly something relevant to both you and I, is I remember the other day I was listening to some of our early episodes in the first season, because every once in a while I like to go back, compare, see how we've progressed, see things that we've done better, things that we were doing well then that for some reason we forgot about or they fell off to the side. And like, yeah, you know, why did, why, how, how did that happen? Let's bring that back. You know, let's bring that back. And I think, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm proud of our early work. Hmm. But I really do feel today that our show on the whole, is in fact, in many respects, better. And one of the reasons for that is, let's first of all, we'll start here. You may have heard this many times, content is king. It is absolutely true. Mm. When you're working with somebody else, in this case, obviously, Patrick and I are permanently remote co-hosts, for the most part. You know, that's just the reality mm. of the show that we're doing in the situation that we're in. We didn't start with the rapport that we had today, this is something that we've really built over time with dedication and consistency and, and really taking our time to understand and, and hone the craft that we're doing. And if you're ever working in a co-hosting situation, which if you guys are both into it and you're dedicated and, you know, this the right foundations of a partnership that can really last, depending on whatever your show may be, whatever the structure is. I personally can't imagine really doing a show by myself at this point. I mean, yeah, I, I guess I can conceive it, but I, I wouldn't consider it nearly as much fun. Yeah, I couldn't do Name Explained on my own for 90 minutes. I think that'd get rather boring. I'm always amazed at people who are not so much scripted content, but non-scripted content like Let's Plays, and like live streaming. Like To be that interesting for that amount of time without much of a script on your own, that's very impressive. So oh, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely wouldn't want to be doing this on my own, Paul. I'm very happy we, I've got you here. 
No, any form. I'm very happy no, to have you here. Definitely, but just just for everything else you do with the podcast, for everything like that, it's just it's great fun, isn't it? It's very lucky that we're able to do this. It is a tremendous privilege to be able to sit down, record with you every couple of weeks, doing the show that we're doing, and knowing that you, wherever you may be listening, are enjoying it as we are enjoying it. Because I mean that that's where it's at. You know, that's what it's about, about mm. you guys and, and the joy that Patrick and I have working together doing this show. And it's, it's an incredible thing. And on top of that, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about you never know who's listening. And for us, sometimes in the podcasting world, it's a little harder to understand exactly who is listening. We can see numbers. You know, the numbers aren't lying. <laughs> we know you're there. But in terms of, you who tune into us every two weeks or so and take the time to listen and follow. And I don't think there's ever been a point in time where I haven't been surprised that certain people from a certain age or demographic or background really take a lot from what it is that you and I do. And it's an, it's an amazing thing. Anytime I'm able, able to encounter it, because you know, every once in a while we get letters, emails, I should say, from listeners. And it's really incredible stuff seeing how we get this slight peek behind the curtain for you listening, for what your thoughts are. How did you get here? Why did you enjoy it? How is it affecting you and your life? And when you hear some of those stories, I can only describe them based on the experiences that I have had as being extremely humbling. Because you never know not only who's listening or who they are, but the circumstances that exist in their life, your life, the listener, when you are listening to us, that you know, having dealt with situations like this myself, there are a bit of content out there that's helped me through, you know, hard or trying times, and it helps cope. And this thing, even though it's technically started before the pandemic, I'd like to think has also helped people in a small way cope with it in their own way. Paul, as always, you're an expert with your words, and just, I, I couldn't even say that in a more succinct way myself. I just blow on after you, but... You never blather on, believe me. <laughs> It's just lucky that you could say all these things, I think, but you can say them in a much more elegant way than I ever could. I guess I'm the Aaron to your Moses. Yes, yes, I'll take that. I'll take that. I could be Moses. I think I'd make a good Moses. <laughs> well, with all that in mind, we'd like to thank our patron for submitting that question. It's not an easy one, to be sure, but it's certainly an appropriate one today. And if you really want to help out the show, donate to Patreon. The AD History Podcast on Patreon at the $5 tier or higher. And one of your many benefits for doing so is submitting your question to be answered in our now famous middle segment. And if you donate on $3 or higher per month, you get the episodes 48 hours early. You get the special Patreon director's cut, which is a bit more of an in-studio feel with some additional content that we think you guys will really like. And it helps the show in ways that you can't possibly imagine because without going any further, Patrick and I have some good, interesting plans going forward, and you're most definitely a part of that, in addition to things like Best of BCR, special miniseries that focuses on the epoch that predates our show, which is always a lot of fun. And the fact of the matter is, we know times are hard. And if you really do want to help us out in a way that is extremely useful, if you are listening through a podcast app or podcatcher of your choice and they offer ratings and reviews, be sure to leave us a glowing five-star rating and review. Believe me, we listen to them. We read them, I should say, and so do other people. It helps them find the show and better understand it. And the fact of the matter is, when we hear those words from you guys, it is such a boost. 
And of course, if you're over on YouTube, be sure to hit subscribe and, and hit the ding dong to let us know when this thing is going to drop, which of course is every other Saturday. Leave a comment, like, subscribe, share. If you enjoy your hideous history, you know somebody else who might be into it, definitely share it with them. That's the beauty of podcasting is that we can promote it all we want, but at the end of the day, it is you guys who make the show possible and popular because most podcast popularity ends up coming out of word of mouth. And you guys have done a tremendous job of that, and we cannot thank you enough. But us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. And thank you very much, Anna. Now, Paul, last time we did a What We Missed, we did that really fun thing where we recommended books, uh, just history books we had enjoyed in the past, and we thought we'd do it again. But however, this time we're focusing on books we're specifically reading at the moment, or at least on our reading lists anyway. One of them's my soon-to-start reading. So, Paul, let's hear what books you're reading at the moment. And of course, history books, I mean... I. I'm sure you might read in Captain Underpants as well, Paul. I know how much you enjoy the series, <laughs> but we're just interested in our history books right now. Point taken. <laughs> Point taken. So I, I don't think these are any of a repeat from last time. So we each chose three because I think that's a pretty mentally satisfying round number in this case. Yeah, yeah. And one of them I think is not going to be any surprise to longtime listeners of AD history. It's actually, I'm actually kind of rereading, not kind of, I'm definitely rereading this, is Stalin Volume 2, Waiting for Hitler. 1929 to 1941 by Stephen Kotkin. And this is a book that actually we reference a fair amount specifically in certain respects, even though he hasn't quite caught up to where we were talking about, in our AD History Watches version of the death of Stalin. And the reason this is so interesting is Stephen Kotkin is a professor at Princeton, and he has written significantly on the Soviet Union Russian history, things of that nature. Incredible personality. He's so New York in so many ways. It's great. Like a true middle class Bronx, New York upbringing. It is, I love it. And the thing that's so interesting about this, so this is the second volume of a projected three-volume Cradle to Grave, slightly before, slightly beyond biography of Joseph Stalin. And one of the things that makes it special is that the immense amount of context that he uses so if you were to go back to, say, Volume 1, Stalin himself actually doesn't appear nearly as much as you think he would, because he starts out with this grand, much grander look in terms of context in regards to the world Stalin was born in in Georgia in the 1870s, which is to say that the Russian Empire at the time, on its east, had a major restoration and a consolidating and growing in power Japanese empire, and to its west it had German unification and the role that would play in the continent. And both of those things only transpire about a decade, in some cases a little less than a decade, from when Stalin was born. And so he gives us tremendous context of what was going on that leads to better understanding how the Bolshevik coup happened, how the Tsarist empire fell, and how this Bolshevik government that would become known as the Soviet Union ended up consolidating power and executing it. But the second one is very different, the one we're talking about here. Whereas that the other one did not focus on Stalin, oddly enough, nearly as much. This one, in his words, takes place largely in Stalin's mind and in his office, what they call the little corner, I believe, which is in the Imperial Senate building in the Kremlin. I believe it's actually still preserved today, interestingly enough. And the thing that's really amazing about this is, you know, there are so many 
biographies out there for somebody that is as important and as big a figure as Joseph Stalin. But the value in that always boils down to the sources that you're using and the methodology that you're using for your research. And in this case now, even though we're starting to get cut off a bit uh, as tensions have grown between mm -hmm. East and West, after the Soviet Union fell, scholars from the West had access to Soviet documents that had previously been secret and classified that through the 90s and the early 2000s when the Russian Federation as we know it today was really coming out of the Soviet collapse and beginning to really solidify and, and, and start uh, humming on its own, to use a phrase. And what he does is he's only interested in documents and accounts that are verified contemporaneous and that the only way he uses accounts for people that are looking back in hindsight is if more than one person is telling the same story and the ABCs line up, which is really fantastic. And one of the things you must be thinking, oh, well, Princeton professor, you know, that has to be dry as plywood to read. And the answer is mm -hmm. absolutely not. And this was something that actually really confounded me at first because that was the expectation that I had. I was still going to read it because I'm really interested, but I didn't expect the quality of the writing to be so good. And it didn't occur to me until much later, why this was the case is because, interestingly enough, when he was an undergrad, he first started out in his first year as pre-med. Then when he had to go and first observe a dead human body, and he had only in there for about three minutes before he had to step out and vomit, he decided to change majors. And he actually became an undergrad in English literature major, which ultimately opened up his interest and access in history. And, and, and the rest is his personal history. So not only is this coming from somebody that is like this incredible scholar, but the story, the story and the writing and bringing it together with this tremendous research and methodology, honestly, is a game changer. And every scholar in this area, even relevant ones, whatever the case may be, say that this biography of Stalin, if you are interested in it, and it is huge, don't drop it on your foot, you're going to the emergency room. It's a total game changer in how we understand how he came to power, the system that he built to do so, and the very nature of how somebody goes from being born in Georgia in the 1870s, which is literally about as far as you can be from power at the time relative to that. Think about it this way. You're closer to Iraq in, in this case, Georgia at that time than you are to Moscow. That's how distant this guy mm. was. And Stalin does not have any real redeeming qualities by any means, but if you're a history guy and you're interested in the history of politics, the military, whatever it may be, you can't ignore Joseph Stalin for even a moment because one of the things that make him such a, a standout figure, and when we say standout figure, that's a value-neutral term. We really mean standing out above the rest because he did something that nobody else really ever did. How he went from being so distant in power to the point in when he died when by virtue, especially of the system in which he ruled, that he also died the most powerful man on earth. And that's really incredible stuff. Really incredible stuff. And you've talked about this uh, biography many times before, Paul, and I will read it one day. It sounds massive. It sounds incredibly daunting. And like you said, I've always been, I've always been, it was written by a Princeton uh, professor that would be really dry. But if it's got an engaging uh, writing, that's all I need. I like, just to keep me hooked like that. You know, I mentioned this middle-class Bronx upbringing. The way you can it see it... It comes out in the book, yeah. I remember, especially in volume two, there's a chapter, or at the very least a subheading of a chapter, part of one, that is literally titled Three-Card Monty. <laughs> that, that's, yeah. So this is not dry. 
It's incredible. No. And it's, you know, it's available in hardback, softback. It's available in yeah. audiobook. You might have a little trouble getting used to the narrator, but once you do, he's your guy. But okay. it's a really fantastic book that I would strongly recommend. That and Stephen Cocken is one of those guys that I would describe very much as, in terms of historical scholars, as one of my role models based on how he does his work. Because it's so impressive and how he handles himself, carries himself, and does the work he does. I mean, goodness, to be able to accomplish even half of that in a lifetime, it, to me at least, and this one particular student of history's view, mm. would be a hell of an accomplishment. But you also have some books you are reading too. We'll get to my other ones later, but let's, let's hear one of yours. So yes, I'm reading The Story of Art by E.H. Gombrich, and this is a very beloved book. And while it might not sound like it's about history, it's about the history of art. And the history of art is basically the history of everything, guys. This book tracks pretty much what was going on throughout the world at most given times from Stone Age Man to probably about the 30s or 40s, I believe it probably reaches. And what was happening in the world of art and more importantly, I guess, design at the same time. A lot of this book is about architecture, what buildings were looking like, how people were being drawn. And it's incredible. Um, E.H. Gombrich has two very well-known books under his belt. It's this one, Story of Art and A Short History of the World. And the, I mentioned A Short History of the World in the last uh, one. And that's another yes. fantastic read. That one is more to the point. It's, more, it's a smaller book written more with a younger audience in mind. This one's written with a young audience in mind as well, which is good because like I said I like engaging writing. And Gombrich, despite being about in the 30s or so, is one of the most engaging writers you will come across. And I am actually reading the Pocket Edition, which is still massive. So when this book first came out, it was, I guess, I guess the term would be a coffee table book. And it still is available in a coffee table book format, where it's a big, chunky book full of glossy picture, glossy pages of the art he's talking about next to it. This pocket edition contains all the text and all the paintings. However, it puts all the paintings at the back with reference numbers throughout the book. So it will say, here we have, I don't know, the Mona Lisa. Then next to it will say brackets, figure 81. And you go to the back of the book, find figure 81, and it'll be the Mona Lisa. And it's just, it's a really engaging, unique kind of book like that. I'm about halfway through it at the moment. And it's absolutely riveting. I'm, I'm a big fan of art. Anyway, I think I've, I don't know if I've talked about that much on here, but I'm very interested in art and art times. That's why I was so interested when you mentioned the Gupta artwork, uh, Paul, hearing about that sort of thing. Very interesting as well. We haven't really traveled to India in the book yet, but I hope it comes up because art is perhaps one of the best ways we have to know what was happening in history. So, uh, totally. Other than written, yeah, other than written texts, we have statues. You know, when you think of Roman remains, it's art, it's statues, it's buildings, it's Everything like that. So while it might seem a bit silly to write a book about art, it's art is so intrinsically linked with history that they're at times they're more or less one and the same. You know, a lot of history was recorded through art in the past. Oh yeah, I mean, you think about how we understand the Romans nowadays. I mean, there's just it's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, that is so much of where our image of them comes from. Yeah, like we know it so much through. Yeah, we know it through the fact that they that, that that they were nice enough to leave pictures for us, basically. And we're always talking about coins, coins once again, that could be considered a form of art, I suppose. So art with a little bit more purpose, more than just to be stared at and appreciated, but they were stared at and they're appreciated and they're still being appreciated to this day. Are there any standout aspects of the book that are worth sharing that you've really enjoyed thus far? I guess the bits I sort of enjoy is just the way it's presented. Each chapter, like it introduces a chapter, it says where it's going to be covered. 
It says what time is going to be covered. It's written in a very engaging way. It's it's got pictures in it, Paul. Like, because I'm a simple oh, person I would who hope likes so. to well, pictures. Yeah. I would hope there's pictures. Exactly. Goodness. Yeah. There's definitely pictures. Just it's just a really perfect little package, really. But it's a big old book. It looks bigger because it's got all the pictures at the back. I'd highly recommend it. And Gombrich is just a fantastic writer. That is a shame we didn't get more from him. I suppose so. He wrote quite a long, long time ago. Yes, I just big fan of his writing. Might try and hunt down some more of his work. Well, I don't even know what it is. I know his main two books. Beyond that, I'm not sure what he did. I am sure there's probably more. Yeah, same. But Paul, what else is on your list? So this one's not going to come as a surprise to any listener of AD History, but it's a tremendous book, and I'll explain why in a moment. It was released, I want to say, in 2018. It is the Second World Wars, plural, World Wars, Mm. by Victor Davis Hanson. Why is this book so important? What makes it special? Well, first off, yes, it is an A to Z, of the conflict and various aspects of it. In the air, on the ground, at sea, industrial, the political, the whole thing. What is so incredible about this, and this is something that I think is very seldom understood in terms of the popular understanding of that conflict, is that we think of it as this one big global thing. And it was that, but it didn't start that way. And what I mean by that is that what we know today as the Second World War, and what really turned into that, was a series of various independent conflicts that occurred that ended up turning into this great conflagration that we all think about. Here's a good part. So here, let's start up in Europe in September of 1939. What happens? You have a German-Polish border war. Hmm. Three days after that invasion happens, the British Empire and the French declare war on Hitler, and it expands. And then you have, for example, the Finnish Winter War in late 39, early 40, between the Finns and the Soviet Union, another portion of it. Then, of course, Hitler invades Norway and then manages to invade the West. And, of course, France is knocked out, Belgium, the Netherlands, you get the idea. Then, of course, you have the Italians who go and invade Albania, and then Greece. And then you have the Italian invasion of Egypt that the Germans ended up getting themselves involved in and against the British Empire down in North Africa. And then you have the invasion of Yugoslavia in 1941. And then in June 1941, you have the invasion of the Soviet Union, which expands the conflict even more in addition to what's happening right then between the British Empire and Nazi Germany. And this doesn't even include the 1937 invasion of Japan into China, which many scholars, as I've mentioned quite a few times at this point, actually can be considered in certain respects in a very good argument, actually the beginning of World War II, two years before we think about it, two years before Hitler is, you know, poking his head and knocking out Poland. And then, of course, you have the Japanese various attacks in December of 1941, not just Pearl Harbor, but, you know, we're talking about Guam, we're talking about Singapore, we're talking about Malaya, we're talking about Hong Kong, to name a few. And America is brought in. And then it is truly a world war. And so one of the most important aspects taking from this book, in addition to just the tremendous detail that only a military historian of his caliber can possibly write, it gives a much more realistic fashion in a prospective fashion, which is something obviously you and I value a great deal in the show, of the fact that, no, it was not this huge global conflagration 
that occurred the second Nazi boots were on Polish territory. It is a combination of many different conflicts around the world that create the global conflict. And I highly recommend it to anybody that's interested in that and wants more detail and to get more substance from the topic and learning about it in a way that will further your understanding tremendously. As someone who knows not as much about the Second World War as he should, and that's my fault, maybe it's also the UK education system's fault, but mainly my fault as well. Um, that sounds like a book I definitely need to read. Is What I would love is one definitive book that explains pretty much everything in an engaging way. World War, Second World War how it happened and how it went down. Paul, for someone after a book like that, would you recommend this one? Yes, but I think there'd be another one that I would recommend before it. Mm. Okay, uh, that's a yeah. little, little bit lower barrier to entry. That's what I like. I like low barrier, to, low barrier to entry. Which would be The Storm of War, A New History of the Second World War by Andrew mm. Roberts. That is that's an A to Z. And mm, one of the things that's really interesting about that book is not only is it an A to Z and incredibly engaging, and might I add, the audiobook version of it is epic, utterly, mm -hmm. utterly epic. The production quality and the narrator are so incredible. I don't think I've ever heard anybody do a better impression of Winston Churchill's natural conversational speaking voice than Christian Rodska does. I'm going to have to look at that one. That sounds very engaging. You should have recommended that one, Paul. <laughs> uh, well, I can only choose so many. But in, in no, this definitely. particular case, the one thing that is interesting about that book is that not only you're getting this A to Z, but he's also looking at various things that could have been done differently on all sides that would have changed the course of the war and why it didn't happen that way. So highly recommended in that case. I started off with one book, now we're at two. But Patrick, you have another title in mind. I do indeed, Paul. Uh, my next suggestion is a book called Heroes, which is a very, uh, quite a normal sounding name. Like, what, what Heroes, what's that about? It's written half by one Mr. Stephen Fry. Uh, oh, that's a name that most people should be able to recognize. Yeah, that's a name, I'm sure. So uh, Stephen Fry has done a lot of writing in his time. He's written novels and memoirs and lots of, lots of, lots of, lots of good comedy. Uh, in more recent years, he's taken to rewriting the Greek myths, Greek mythology and heroes. is actually a follow-up, a sequel of sorts to his wonderful book, Mythos. And Mythos is a Stephen Fry's retelling of the original Greek myths and everything about them really. Heroes is the follow-up and Heroes focuses more on the mortals. Mortals and monsters is more defined as an I'm a sucker for Greek myth. Is it history? Kind of. It's uh, historically it's relevant. It's historically relevant. That's the best way to put it, Paul. It's incredibly historically relevant to, to those people. And they're just fun, fascinating, strange to modern ears. And Heroes is Stephen Frasman, his retelling of the great figures of, of of Earth, the humans of that time. So it, it, it's fundamentally a collection of short stories. And you've got the story of Hercules in there, the story of uh, Jason, the, sto the story of Perseus in there, just to name a few. And they're all rewritten and retold in Stephen Fry's unique, charming way. And what I love so much about it, people ask, how is this how are these books written? They're not written like normal history books. There's dialogue. They're written like they're written like stories, and it's just fantastic. He adds so much character to these figures who we all know. We all know of Hercules. We all know of Jason. 
But the way he brings them to life is so wonderful. And once again, they're so engaging. That's the word I look for with my books. I want a book that will keep me entertained. And it does it perfectly. I've had a bit of time off recently, um, just, 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 just because summer, resting up, that sort of thing. And it's been my holiday book of choice. When I'm in work mode, I've been reading the story of art. But when I'm in holiday mode, I've been flicking the pages of Heroes by Stephen Fry. And it's absolutely terrific. I'd love to know, Paul, how, how well known is Stephen Fry across, across in America? I'm assuming not very well known. That's just, that's just a, a guess here. Interesting. But what I will say is the thing I like about how you described it is that in so many ways not perfectly, but the same kind of general idea applies, is that when you begin studying, you know, in this case, the Greek legends and the Greek epics, the thing that is really interesting when you go a little further down the line are people like Sophocles, Euripides, Aeschylus, and their adaptation of these particular figures, especially when you're talking about the Homeric epic, mm. Iliad and the Odyssey, and building on those stories in what they call classical tragedy. Mm. It's kind of like the, the, a really early, extremely popular form of fan fiction. Yeah, that is a really good way of putting it. It's really fascinating stuff. Like, for yeah. example, what happened when Agamemnon got home? Well, yeah. he was killed by Clytemestra in the bath. Shocker. You know, things like that. Really interesting stuff. Or Oedipus Rex is another one if you're talking about Sophocles. Mm. So really incredible stuff. And they give you, you know, we talk about, oh, well, how are these, you know, how is this a history book? Well, guys, the way that we tell our stories in one way or another, even whether it's supposed to be for fiction or fact, is incredibly relevant to understanding any culture and how they thought, not just about the world around them, but about themselves and what they consider to be culture and the influence that they ultimately have wielded thousands of years later, we're still talking about this. So I love, you know, those who take on that sort of task because it's something that we've been doing for so long now and there's such a rich history to include the kind of works that you are describing there in the case of Stephen Fry. Yeah, and like you said, they're just that these stories are made to be retold. They were originally oral traditions. So Oh, yeah. It's only fair that they, that they are written down and we've had people of the past have their crack at it and that's Stephen Fry's turn to recount his stories and it's his versions of the book, of these tales I share with people. And in regards to it being a history book, it, in some instances it shows us, it gives us an understanding of how normal people work. A lot of these stories involve ordinary humans, what life was like for them. And it also explains to us the mindset they had. They A lot of these myths exist to help understand the world around them because these guys didn't have science or technology to the same degree we have science and technology now when it rained they didn't know what was making that happen exactly so they just believed it was people in the sky making that happen it makes all the sense in the world and one of my favorite uh, stories explains how the milky way came to be and can you imagine not having the understanding we have of space now and looking up in the night sky and seeing the milky way you would think that was the work of magical entities like gods. You just would because you wouldn't have any other way to explain it. And that's what I love so much about these myths. If we can learn any from, from them, we can learn how people thought in the past, the cognitive functions of these people, how, how they came to these conclusions about the world around them and presumed it was a sort of magic. And that's going to sound so cheesy. 
it is a sort of magic. <laughs> well, magic is an interesting thing. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> and I don't know that I have much more to say to that end, but I, I no, really... No, just me being silly. <laughs> no, no, no. No better time or place, my friend. So the last title that I'm going to share is a very interesting book. It's still very much within the realm of the stuff that I usually read, but if you're into this kind of stuff, you'll dig it too. And this one came out, I believe, in 2017, and it's called Lenin the Dictator by Victor Sebastian. Why is this so interesting? Well, yes, it is a, a full biography of the life of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, better known as Vladimir Lenin, and his upbringing, his emergence into the world, and the life that he lived. But what makes it so incredible, Patrick, is that it is so human that you understand Lenin in ways that humanize him. Now, just because you humanize somebody, this is something that happens from time to time, especially for more, you know, just these generally awful figures, and Lenin was definitely a part of them. Some people seem to believe that when you humanize them, that somehow it gives them or the perception of absolution for the various things that they are responsible for. I think of it entirely the other way. The more you humanize these people, the more terrifying they become because mm. they're not this big boogeyman. They're somebody that you could have met in your own life, and it is absolutely terrifying to think the things that people can do. But in this case, you get a very strong, almost inside look at how he lived, you know, his various years in European exile, decades trying to make what he did happen, the role of his wife, Nadia Krupskaya. All of these various figures that he encountered and the life that he lived and, and seeing it happen on a very human level, which, like I said, is not absolution. It just makes it a hell of a lot more terrifying in many respects. But Sebastian does it in such a, such a fluid way. He tells the story so well. It's genuinely enjoyable. And you really get to see how he went from being this you know, niche revolutionary, you know, basically biding his time in Switzerland for something that may or may never happen in his eyes before all of this breaks out to somebody who ends up founding one of the superpowers of the 20th century. And I highly recommend it because the writing is beautiful. The scholarship is excellent. It draws you in in a way that you can't even possibly imagine. Let me give you a good example of this. Mm. In the beginning of the book, and this is actually taken from Leon Trotsky, so however you want to interpret that, so be it. When they were in Leningrad in October of 1917 for the Bolshevik coup, and they were in the Smolny building, which is basically where the Bolsheviks had kind of started squatting out at that point in time. And before this was all happening, or as it was happening, I should say, when they were taking power, Trotsky recalled a situation where Lenin sits down and he says, from near death and completely on the outside to ultimate power, it is almost too much, after which he makes the sign of the cross. Mm. Vladimir Lenin, Soviet Russia, one of the premier officially atheist states, the father of that country, the one that's still in a mausoleum in Red Square today, making the sign of the cross. That's ridiculous. That's the kind of story that Victor Sebastian is telling. That's the kind of insights you have. And it is awe-inspiring, Patrick. It, drive, it gets you immediately if you're into this kind of thing. Sounds, like you, can't you can't stop reading. No, it sounds fascinating. Like, 
I love that description at the moment, that making someone a more well-rounded human makes them even more scary. And it's interesting, Lenin is one of those figures who kind of gets a pass in the history book. By and large, people like Lenin, he's seen as a more respectable figure from history, as opposed to, say, someone like Stalin or like Lenin. But if you dig into what Lenin did, he did some pretty bad stuff. In an epic fashion. He gets, he does, you're right, he does get a pass. He's kind of like a more benign, neutral, revolutionary figure. And I can yeah. assure you that he would want to vomit knowing that that was the case. He wanted people to know he was a piece of shit. <laughs> he was extremely touchy about that mm. kind of thing. He was never happy about having, say, a cult of personality, which obviously evolved and then was highly cultivated under Stalin and existed mm. well to the end of the Soviet Union. Like I said, his mausoleum is sitting, still sitting in Red Square today. And people like me and you who have no links to Russia want to go see it. <laughs> I mean, it's there. I mean, yeah. you, you, you have to yeah. see it. So you're right. He, he definitely does. And, you know, when we're talking about the humanization, you know, one of the, one of the examples of this that I always give, because it's always so startling, and you really see this in the movie from 2004, Downfall. Even yes, Hitler loved his dog, and his dog loved him. And that is yeah. how terrifying some of these people are and what they do. This is kind of off topic, but that was one of the main thought processes, not downfall or Hitler or Lenin particularly, but one of the main thought processes behind the creation of Breaking Bad. Vince Gilligan wanted to take yes, a really yes, nice, yes, yes. normal person and make them awful. And Walt is such, you see every side of Walt and that makes him even more scary, knowing that he was such a normal guy. He did such awful things. Spoiler that is alert, kind such of. a good example. And you could also start seeing the same thing with Saul Goodman in Better Call Saul. Yes. Oh, Better Call Saul is so freaking good. Go I watch Better Call Saul if you haven't yet, guys. You know, I, I don't think I'm in as much of a minority as I once thought I was. Hmm. I like Better Call Saul better. I'm going to wait for it to be finished, and then I might have to say that as well. But it, it is far less stressful and more enjoyable because. Well, Saul Besson, Jimmy, isn't terrible to begin with, and yep. Kim's just wonderful as well. She's it, amazing. It, it's, she's, she's incredible. Um, no, it's a fantastic show. It's definitely better from one, some aspects. Once it's all done and dusted, then I might feel more confident in saying it's definitely better. But it's, it's, a, it's a very different show. show. Very different. It's, it is more enjoyable. It's not as stressful. It's just not, yeah, it hasn't got that sort of emergent stress like Breaking Bad had. No. Also, of course... It's not just a prequel about Jimmy McGill. It's also a prequel of Jonathan Banks's character. Yeah, Mike. Um, Mike. It's just it's all amazing how much it fleshes out that universe, but stands on its own two legs. I mean, look, look. You look. You look at Mike, right? Yeah. Former cop, who is a genuinely good guy. You know, basically lives to look after his granddaughter. Mm -hmm. Ends up getting involved with infamous mm -hmm. nemesis to Walt. And yeah. the awful things that he does in service to that. You're, they're human, but the things that they are willing to do is terrifying. And we see that so much in history. And I can tell you, while yes, generally I would agree that it's a little easier show to watch, season six is going to rip all of our hearts out. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how, but we know, what, we know the end result, and we don't know how we get there, and that's sad. But I'm looking forward to it once. And obviously, of course, really weird tangent this has gone on. But let's just hope uh, Bob Odenkirk's recovering where well, he had a heart yeah, attack. He's, he, yeah, he did. He's, he's back to shooting now. Is he back to shooting? That's he's good to, to hear. Thank yeah, God, at the time yeah. of recording, he's back to shooting. So also, we also get to see, because they've had these little, little peeks into the future post-Breaking Bad, <gasps> yeah. what happens to him when he's 
basically gone off the grid and changed his entire personality and how that pans out. With so, his Cinnabons. <laughs> you better believe it. So um, you have one I, last title for I us, I have Patrick. one last title. I don't actually have too much to say about this one. Um, so those two books I'm currently reading, but I'm not actually in the process of reading a third book at the moment, simply because my mind would melt if I tried to read three books at once. Uh, but a third book I'm going to recommend is A Short History of Ireland by John Gibney. Um, so it was my birthday recently, and my wonderful girlfriend got me this book after my request. And Happy Ireland birthday! Is a, thank you very much, Paul. Uh, Ireland's a country I'm deeply fascinated in, and obviously I have family ties to the country. My name's Patrick, after all. And Ireland has got such a unique history, and it's got such interesting unique well-known history from the famine to the troubles to everything in between it's just it, for such a small very unpopulated part of the world obviously that famine is part of the reason it's so low population yeah, i think there, there are more irish here in the united states than there are in ireland exactly i think i've read some of the six million people across all of ireland including northern and yeah, the republic very small L london has like 11 million or maybe 11 7 million there's a more lot. people live in London, yeah. More people live in London than the entirety of Ireland. So to be such a, such I guess a small place in the world to have such a deep, riveting history is something I've always found fascinating. Of course, I exist kind of because of that history. My grandmother left Ireland for those sorts of reasons, what you know, year? because of what year? So she was born 1920. Oh, I believe she. No, 1930. That was a big fib. She was born 1930. Probably 48, you know. So after the war. Yeah. I reckon she immigrated. I think she immigrated when she was 18. So 48, maybe 49, maybe 47 around that time. I should know these sorts of things, but I don't. That's a terrible shame on me. She actually died last year, bless her. So um, it's always good to have that. Yeah, it's just good to have that sort of connection. And it's good to understand that connection. Of course, once I'm done reading this one, I definitely want to have a book about the history of Malta as well. Well, to cover yeah, the other I mean, because you're, you're a quarter Maltese. That's one of the more interesting <laughs> things I remember learning about you. You know, you and I have something in common in this respect. Hmm. Your grandmother came to Great Britain from Ireland in the late 40s. My Italian grandparents came to the United States from southern Italy in 1946. And when, obviously, when I first saw your name, I thought to myself, man, this guy must be Irish to the hilt. But the thing that's so fascinating, and especially considering you and I would, I think, both be considered second generation relative to those ancestors, to those relatives, mm. which we both know, we both knew, is that today you could not be more British and I could not be more American. No, no, yes. I'm, I'm very British and it's kind of one of my whole selling points. <laughs> it's interesting. Just a fun little aside here. I remember when my brother first listened to our first few episodes mm. and kind of like with a wry jocular chuckle, one of his first observations was between you and I that you are very British and I am very <laughs> American. Very American. <laughs> no, that's what makes it work, man. I, if you want to be American, you want to be American. Do you, do you think I'm more upset, Paul? Is he wearing a big cowboy hat every time we record? I think that's what all Americans do, isn't it? <laughs> Well, not not every American, but not this American has a cowboy hat and boots. Yeah, that's what I you should be doing. I spent a lot of time in Texas. <laughs> that's what I should be expecting. Yeah, but, eating a cheeseburger or whatever you guys do, whatever the tropes are. The one thing I will say about America is that obviously, over the last century, we've really, in a very organic way, have exported our culture all over the world. It's still all over the world. 
And if you're listening to this show and you're not an American and you haven't visited the United States, you obviously have some idea of what an American is. And the one thing, and this is, I know this is a little off topic, but I think it's kind of a cool thought. For all of these various ideas of what people might think Americans are in their mind based on the various culture that we have exported, it's really important to note that there really isn't any one definition of what makes an American American, depending on where you are in the country. Certainly in the case of the contiguous United States, the lower 48, because of its size, the culture from region to region is blatantly apparent from the get-go. There are certain common core values and ideas, things of that nature, that are universal to everybody living here. But the cultural aspects of various parts of it, like, for example, somebody in Connecticut might not have a very similar personality or disposition to somebody that's from Houston, or somebody that lives in Miami might not have a hell of a lot in common that's from Utah or Salt Lake City. That's how diverse a country this is. So there's really is no one idea of what that means. I don't know how, how that works out in the case of the British Isles. I know there are many different flavors of Britons. You know, you also have the Welsh, you have the Scots, Northern Ireland. But given its size and everything that's involved, never go into any interaction with an American with some sort of preconceived disposition, with one exception. And I know this is something that is particularly difficult for a lot of the British who visit here for the first time and certain people from who are Western Europe is that they can become a little unnerved at how open we are to talking to strangers. Yes. <laughs> and you've only really been to, to Orlando and New York City, and it's been very apparent there. And that's not even the half of what it can be like in a place like Indiana or Arizona or Seattle. Yeah, you guys love a chat, as I'm sure people in our podcast can gather. <laughs> um, it's true. No, own it, own it, definitely. But... um. It's not on public transport as well. That'd be my biggest fear. I'm like, if I'm on a plane or a bus or a train, I won't just sit there with my headphones in. If people can yak my ear off if I'm on a bus in Indiana or a train in Wisconsin, that's not going to happen, is it? Uh, not when they hear that accent. Oh, that's good. They're, at least they know. I should just wear, if I ever end up in America, I'll be like, I'm British. I should get a t-shirt saying, I'm British, don't talk to me. Oh, come now, come now. If you're coming no. to the United States, you're in it up to the hilt, my friend. Thank you so much, Paul, for your book suggestions. Really good stuff and, there. Some great tangents. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great part about this kind of episode is it allows us to kind of have a little fun, you know, get to the stuff, what we miss, but talk about various things and letting you know who has followed us for so long more about us and what we're all about. And, and we really enjoy getting to know you. And of course, you mm. can always reach us on the socials. You know how to do that. Twitter. Instagram, Facebook, or you can send us an email. You guys have done that on quite a few occasions before, and we always love it, which of course is adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Once again, that's adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. And we always love hearing from you, getting to know you. So this has been fun today, Patrick. This has been extremely fun, Paul. I always love talking books and history and just all that sort of stuff. Amazing stuff as always, Patrick. Us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at 
PKD in History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today from myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as ADHistoryPodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching ADHistoryPodcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at ADHistoryPodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.